Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Parenting is hard. There's no manual that goes along with that new baby. And it doesn't get any easier when they get older. Yeah. Most days, I feel like I'm flying blind. (laughs) Most days, I feel like I'm building the plane while I fly it. (laughs) So that's where this podcast comes in. Think of us as your coffee clutch, your wine buddies, your trust tree. We talk about kids, families, our significant others. Remember when you were my significant other, Ann? Wait, I'm not anymore? And remember, we're just average, not experts. We find the experts to help us through the real head scratchers. Well, we did do that episode on lice, remember, Ann? Ugh, now I need to take a shower. So circle up and welcome to Apparently. So apparently the topic of mental health continues to be front and center in our lives. As some of you might remember, back in December of 2021, the U.S. Surgeon General actually issued an urgent public health advisory regarding youth mental health crisis in America. Right. While mental health problems have been around for many years, partly because of tech use and social media platforms, the 2021 advisory suggested the pandemic took things from bad to really bad. But for context, from 2009 to 2019, the percentage of high school students who reported feeling persistently sad or hopeless jumped from 26% to 37%. And the percentage who reported that they had made a suicide plan grew from an already startling 11% to an even more alarming 16%. So to talk about the emotional lives of our teenagers, we're just going to get right to it. We're thrilled to bring back an old friend. At least I think she's like an old friend. In fact, she's the only guest that I can remember, Anne, who we've actually had on apparently three times. Does she need a jacket or something? Uh, Apparently. (laughs) Dr. Lisa Damore, your friend and mine, joins us to talk about her latest book. She's a regular contributor on the CBS News and writes about adolescence for the New York Times. She actually has her own podcast also called Ask Lisa. We've had her on to talk about her bestsellers, uh, Untangled and uh, Under Pressure. But her latest is called, as I said before, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. But... It really should be called What to Expect When You're Facing a Really Unexpected Teenager. (laughs) Like those pregnancy books when we were younger? Right. right. By younger, I mean when we were becoming moms. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. You're like, I said to Anne earlier, you're like a warm woobie on a cold winter day here in Chicago. You make everything feel like it's going to be okay. And after reading your book, I can tell everyone else thinks so too because I feel like your phone's ringing all the time. (laughs) people that call you and ask, hey, I have this question. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me back. I love being with you. So let's start from the beginning. In the very beginning of your book, you make it clear an emotionally healthy teen is not always a happy teen. What? (laughs) I love this. This is great. Could you please explain that? Because I think we all think that good mental health means being happy. We really all do. And it's really not accurate. And it's interesting because that's where the culture has gone. And I think very much with the encouragement of a wellness industry that has worked very hard to sell us the idea that we can get to a place of being calm and relaxed, maybe even happy, and we could stay there. And if we can do it, our kids can do it. And if someone's upset, then something, you know, isn't happening the way it should be happening. So let me actually be really um, what is going to seem strident in reversing this entirely. 
which is so, so often the presence of distress is evidence of mental health. I know it's not how we talk and think, but I'm just going to give you some garden variety examples that make it, that fit with everything we know about how the world really works. So say a kid has not studied for something and then unsurprisingly bombs the test and is really upset about having bombed the test, we would welcome that as evidence that that kid works exactly as we want him to work, right? Which is he messes up, he feels bad, and we would embrace that distress as something that can help him learn, something that can help him grow if he decides he does not want to feel that way again and then takes steps to prevent it. So that's one example. Another example would be if, um, say, you know, girl gets her heart broken, right? There's somebody she really likes, person doesn't like her back. She may be weepy. She may be under a cloud for a few days. She may um, wonder if she's ever going to find love, right? All of this we treat as entirely natural to being human, much less a teenager. So distress is just part of the deal of being human, and it's very much part of the deal of being a teenager. Psychologists don't worry that much about it. And I think that's a really important thing to underscore, that we see distress as like, eh, it's a Wednesday. Like, there's going to be distress, right? And for teenagers, there's going to be distress at multiple points through the day. So what do we worry about? What we worry about is how the distress is being handled. So if we go back to the boy, if he comes home and he is upset with himself and he's like, all right, I am going to go for a run to try to feel better and then I'm going to buckle down or I'm going to talk to my parents about you know, how I'm going to get through this and change my course here. This is beautiful handling. So the kid's in distress. He's handling it in ways that bring relief and move things in the right direction and do no harm. If the boy messes up the test and is upset about it and comes home and he's like, the answer to this problem is to smoke a bunch of weed until the feeling dies down, or the answer to this problem is to blame my terrible teacher and, you know, get online and start all sorts of trouble just because then I have a new distraction to focus on. Okay, well, now we have concerns. Now we have concerns. But the presence of distress is almost always appropriate, a sign of health, informational, growth-giving, not all of those every time, but at least a few of them pretty much every time. We only worry when it is not handled well or when it is overwhelming everything else, right? We don't want feelings calling the shots, but psychologists would not do away with distress ever if that were an option available to us. But as parents, do we swoop, like, I know I have a propensity to swoop in or like, it's uncomfortable when they're uncomfortable. So or is it only perpetuating this because we're lingering on it as opposed to just letting her vent and move on? Do you understand what I, you, you know I what I mean? Do. So I think it's very natural to being a parent that like, if your kid's in pain, you want it to stop because you both empathize deeply with your kid. And also there's the reality, and I'm the mother of a teenager, two, two, two teenagers, where you're like, and I want to get on with my evening, right? Like, I had other plans besides <laughs> this, right? Yeah, um, that's every day I was here. Watch, exactly, like, I was going to watch Formula One and then go to bed, right? I mean, instead, here I am having this conversation. So there's a couple things often at play in our wish to bring it to a quick and happy close. That is natural to being a parent. And then, of course, in the wake of the pandemic, we have 
lots of headlines about adolescent mental health crisis, lots of headlines about suicidality in teenagers. And so that becomes like this third factor, right, in us wanting to make it all okay as fast as possible. And I do think, Tracy, what you suspect is true, that it doesn't actually help as much as we think it helps. And I'll tell you exactly why. If a teenager is uncomfortable about, again, a Wednesday, right? I mean, it can be any number of things. And they bring that discomfort to us. And if our reaction is urgent, uneasy, or we leap into action to try to get it to all settle down, we're sending a pretty strong message that their discomfort is upsetting to us. We find it concerning. And I think for teenagers, it's very easy to receive that as like, whoa, okay, I thought this was like a 16-year-old size problem, and it's clearly like it's like a 52-year-old size problem, like it's worse than I realized, you know? That was a very specific number, Lisa. Very specific. That's my age. That's my age. to be appropriate in Anne in our house, 16 is the number. (laughs) There we go. So what we want to do is to try to be a steady presence in the face of their distress, So we're present and we're steady. And what this book really is, there's two entire chapters and there's only five chapters that are just basically lists of all the ways we can support teenagers as they're finding their way through a distressing experience. But none of those are, here's how you make it go away instantly, you're prevented from ever happening. Mm Mm-hmm. In your book, you talk about common myths about teen emotions, and one of them, as you mentioned, was the negative emotions are harmful to teens like you were talking about. You say that maturation happens and that distress is growth-giving. That's basically what you're saying there, right? Like, it's okay to be uncomfortable and they work through it? Yes, within limits. Distress is how all of us grow, actually. I mean, it's often the case. And I will say, having practiced for a long time, I've seen it happen over and over again where a teenager gets themselves into a spot or goes through something really painful. And it's hard to watch. It's a lot of work to support that young person through it. And it is through the process of, you know, dealing with the fact that they got caught cheating or dealing with, you know, a severe illness of someone they care about that you just watch them like gain in perspective and maturity and farsightedness and you know they just become like these profound humans not because they're having a great time on a weekend like i hope they have great times on the weekend sometimes that's not actually where you're seeing them add entire new dimensions to their humanity also in the book you talk a little bit about um the difference between uncomfortable and unmanageable and um, I, I heard you tell a story about you had given a talk at a high school and a bunch of high schoolers came up and they're like, listen, it's not okay. We're totally stressed. We're taking four AP classes and we're on varsity sports and we don't have time. To, and and you were like, oh, yeah, kids these days are really overscheduled. So uh, explain for us the difference between uncomfortable and unmanageable. Uncomfortable is something that you can find your way through. Unmanageable is when we're asking more of a young person than ever should have been asked. And there's a lot of ways we can use these two words together. So the first thing I would say is, as parents, we do not want to equate these, right? That as parents, 
it's a real hazard if we're like, my kid's uncomfortable, it, I'm going to treat it like it's unmanageable, I'm going to step in and try to make it go away. And that's an easy thing to do these days. So we want to, in our own mind, as we're watching a teenager suffer in front of us, think, is my kid uncomfortable or is my kid up against something unmanageable? If your kid cannot manage it, you do not let that kid get overwhelmed. You get in there, you help. Uncomfortable is where you can start to have a classroom around how we manage comfort, discomfort, and how we learn and grow so that we can do that autonomously and do things like move out and go to college, right? I mean, so there's there's value in sitting in that space. I think the other way this word comes in is helpful and this gets to the story you were referencing, is that teenagers will get very uncomfortable and they will sometimes feel that it is unmanageable when, if you really think it through with them, they will come to the place of being like, no, I don't like it. This isn't fun for me. But, and I'm thinking about those kids I was talking to after the talk, because they came to me and they were like, no, seriously, lady, we hear you that you think stress (laughs) is good for us. But like, you got to hear our schedules. And they did. They were juniors. They described their schedules and they were athletes and they were also like in debate or something like that. And I said, you are right. Like what you're describing is bananas and you have no downtime. And I said, how much longer is your season? And they said, we have five more weeks. And I said, can you do five more weeks? And they were like, eh, we can do five more weeks. Like, and And so that was the conversation. I wasn't trying to soft pedal it or sugarcoat it or tell them to get off their phones if they really wanted more time for themselves. I mean, I wasn't doing any of the stuff that adults often do when it, when teenagers are like, um, hello, <laughs> we're kind of overwhelmed. But I was putting it, and I asked the question legitimately, like, can you do five more weeks? And I was really open to the possibility that they said, no, actually, we cannot do five more weeks, at which point you then figure out how to solve that problem. How to but unwind it. Yeah. And these particular students were like, no, we can, we can do five. And I'm like, all right good luck with the end of the season, you know, but that worked for them. Mm-hmm. But that's setting a boundary, essentially. I mean, legitimately mm-hmm. a time boundary. Okay, cool. And Lisa, speaking of feelings and managing, um, there's another myth about emotions and emotions cloud judgment, but you say they're actually key to smart decision-making. How is that possible? <laughs> this had me head scratching. I got to be honest, because when they're, <laughs> when they're really into, when they're like, freaking out about something, I'm like, Cal-, you know, my first inclination is to say, calm down. And that's actually a trigger word for them because then they don't get calm. <laughs> no one ever does. No. <laughs> right? um, so here's what I mean. Say you have a son who every time he hangs out with a particular, we'll say finger quotes, friend, he comes home and he feels really bad about himself or he feels small or he feels like the kid actually like seems like he's nice, but he's actually not that nice and it doesn't feel good to be with that kid. Okay. This is really good data. Like we would, it's, it's, it's unpleasant, but it's good information. And we would want him to start to think, do I really need to stay in this friendship if it feels like this? So that's really powerful. But what's important, and this is a metaphor that I, a a colleague shared with me in town, and I talk about my colleague Terry in the book, emotions should really act as like one member of our personal board of directors. So we all have a personal board of directors that like helps us make decisions. And so it's got, you know, its membership is like, you know, our obligations to others, our ethical constraints, our, you know, financial considerations, you know, there's all these things, time, logistics. Also on the board are our emotions. And the way my friend puts it, and I love this, she says, okay, the emotions have a seat on the board, 
they do not chair the board, and they very rarely have a deciding vote. And I think that's that's really how we want to think about it, that they they weigh in on decision-making. So, Tracy, when you're describing a kid who's like, you know, in full froth and making terrible decisions, okay, well, the emotions are chairing the board in that moment. Yes. That's probably not the time we want to have them, you know, carry the weight that they do in terms of making choices. But overall, we should not regard emotions as um, an antagonist to reasoning. Okay. That one I that one I had to reread a couple times because mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't it didn't sync with me right away. But then when you talked about the board of directors, I I got it. One of the things that I've said to Anne a million times uh, it, about you is that your books are totally relatable. And one of the stories in your book was talking to a childhood friend in Minnesota who had connected with you like after one of your workshops. And I know all about what this woman was talking about. I feel like I live it regularly. It was about, um, I think she was concerned about something with her daughter. I can't remember, but it was uh, when kids unload painful feelings on their parents and then they move on. Like when you get the text in the middle of the day, which I can't disclose without like incriminating anybody. But <laughs> I've gotten the text messages like, mom, I bombed the physics test. I'm going to get an F and blah, 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 you know, and it's all caps in a text in the middle of the day when they're supposed to be in class and whatever. And then that's it. I, it's just, I'm going to cry or whatever. And then I take it on and then I'm worrying about it for the rest of the day that I, I think you called it externalization or something yeah. like that. Is there anything we can do to have them not emotionally dump on us? Or is this just part of being a teenager? And how can I decouple myself? Because when I get those texts, then the hairs on the back of my neck start like, cause then I'm like, Oh gosh, that sucks. She's going to be worried about it all day or he's going to be so upset about it. And then I, it festers with me and then I don't hear boo about it the whole rest of the day. I never get another text until at the dinner table when I ask a question and then like, Oh yeah, whatever. And it's like, well, you just were well, all caps. talked to the teacher and it's no big deal. Right? I mean, like, <laughs> all caps. What? I don't understand. How did you do? De- I transferred you-, you to another school. You're, it's all no. good. You're- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So teenagers do this. And the way I think about it, it's like dumping emotional trash. And they pick up garbage that has made them upset. And part of how they can carry on through their day, because your kid probably had three other classes they had to go to Mm -hmm. and not be a wreck through, is an unconscious process by which they are like, I know what I'll do with this horrible feeling. I'll get my loving parent to have it instead. And I know just how to communicate in a way that having hit send on the text, I'll be like, phew. And she will be the one now. It's almost like beaming it to you. She will be the one in tremendous distress. And what I can tell you is, if you're wondering if this has happened, an almost sure way to detect that it has is that they will not respond to anything from you. That they have dumped the trash, and then you're like, oh, could we talk about this trash? They're like, nope, nope. Radio silence. Yep, you keep the trash. I gave it to you. I'm not discussing it. I don't want to talk about the trash. Like, I just want you to hold all that trash. And so... What I would say as a parent in this dynamic, first of all, you cannot avoid it. It is completely boilerplate to raise in teenagers. I also think 
it's a service we provide. I mean, it really is the trash collecting service. Like they pick up so much garbage in the course of a day because being a teenager is super hard. So I thought that was only in the bedroom. I thought I was only collecting the garbage and leftover (laughs) potato chip packs in the bedroom. Nope, nope. But what I can say by way of comfort is that if you get a text like that and then your kid goes dark, you should think to yourself, I bet they feel a lot better now. I bet they feel a lot better now. Okay, I'll remind myself. This. <laughs> okay. Let's, may, may we talk about listening? Because <laughs> this, um, <laughs> this is a, I'm going to be in trouble here. <clears throat> um, when we listen to our kids, are we really listening? And spoiler alert, for me, it's a big no. <laughs> so most parents, t- it's a no. Yeah. So tell us what we're doing wrong. Because, you know, my kids do not really ask me to help them with problems. And I think it's because I'm not a good listener. Well, you're really, I mean it, like very few of us are. And okay. very, very rarely am I the listener I want to be. When we think we're listening, I would say the vast majority of the time what we're doing is we're trying to wait until we feel like we get an opening, like our kid takes a breath or pauses so that we can make a really wise suggestion about what they should do or should have done. That is turn-taking. That is not listening. Mm -hmm. And so what I offer in the book is a gimmick that works really well for me. I love it. It might work for you, which is basically to force myself to not do what is so instinctive as a parent, which is just to try to jump in with an idea. So what I picture is that my teenager is a reporter and I am her editor and she is reading me the article she's about to submit. And my job is to listen so intently that when she gets to the end of reading me the article, whether it's, you know, complaint, distress, whatever it was that she needs to tell me, I can produce the headline for the article. A distillation that really gets at the heart of what it's about, but adds nothing. This is really hard to do. And I will say it usually goes one of three ways. Every once in a while, you nail it. (laughs) It's very rare. It's very rare. And I give an example in the book of like, really, honestly, the one time I can remember. You nailed it, I did. I nailed it. So I was like, I'm going to document it. (laughs) So my example was, um, it was April of 2020. My older daughter was a sophomore in high school. She started to really get a full understanding of what this whole lockdown situation was really going to look like. And she was extremely unhappy, as almost every teenager on the planet was. And I would want to say she came home from school, but she didn't. She walked out of the dining room school that she was in Mm -hmm. and had a, a rant. She was like, oh my God, they took away. So here's her article. They took away dances and sports and meetings and clubs and seeing my friends and getting to have lunch and getting to be outside together and getting to, you know, everything. And they left us APs and tests and lectures and, you know, outlines, Zoom calls. And she said they took away everything fun that made school, everything that made school fun and they just left us school. And I... Was, I don't know why I was on my game that day, but I said to her, man, it's like school is all vegetables, no dessert. And she said, yes, 
And that was it. We were done on one good headline because it's like, I got you. I'm listening. I'm really listening so well. I can see you and raise you in terms of the communication of your sentiment. So every once in a while that may happen. (laughs) That was really my cardinal example. Um, Other times we'll try, and I think you should always offer headlines tentatively and say, is it this? And your kid will be like, no, but it's this with a twist, right? Like they'll help you refine. You collaborate on the headline. Yep. Which is often wonderful for them. You're not, you're still not trying to add or improve or change. Other times you will just have crickets. Like you'll have nothing to offer. This is still going to work because teenagers are teenagers. Like they know us so well. They can tell when we're really tuned in. Like they can tell. And so if you get to the end of the article and you're like, I got nothing. And you're just like, man, that stinks, honey. I'm sorry. I promise you 98.14% of the time, your kid's going to be like, I know it. And be feeling fine and ready to go. I read that chapter to my husband. I was reading your book and he was packing for a trip and I read it to him and he goes, excuse me a minute. I was like, what? And he left the room. And he goes into my son's room and he comes back and he goes, okay. And I said, what, what? He goes, um, my son and him had had a conversation in the car about something at volleyball, like a tournament and it didn't go well. And I guess the conversation didn't go well either. And he went back and gave a headline for what happened and then got a thumbs up from my son. And it was like, this is why your books are so great because you give practical like, examples and everything. And it was something, I guess I called my husband at the right time or something because he went back into the room and came back and he rectified what had happened or, and what the exchange was in the car. And yeah, it was a one and done. That was a one winning moment, but it was like, I don't know, four hours after they had gotten out of the car, but he went back. He, okay, he made I'm covered a headline. In goosebumps. I am covered in goosebumps. I have to tell you, it's hard. Like, I think often when I'm working on a book, and even after the book publishes, I sort of believe, like, it never really leaves my computer. Like, it's my private document. This is between me and maybe my editor. But it's so... <laughs> I don't know, millions of people, Lisa, who are reading your book. Come on. So it's like such an interesting like tension of like, oh, I'm really private and I hope no one ever reads this book. And like, oh, I'm so glad to hear that story about your family. Like that means the world to me. Yeah. Well, we made that volleyball tournament not not so sucky. So So Lisa, um, you have said adolescence is a time for teens to build autonomy. And I, I, I love your analogy about the teen on the side of the pool and the parent is the side of the pool and the teen pushes off and goes back. Pushes. So we are in the throes of this. Uh, Tracy and I both have juniors as well as younger kids, but um, it's excruciating to watch them push away and maybe n- not successfully. I, I'd written this question to be funny because I was like, it's really excruciating f- for people whose names rhyme with Anne. but I think it's excruciating for a lot of us. So how can we give them the rope that they need to get away from us, but help them not to get tangled in it? Ooh. Ooh. Um, here's the thing. They're gonna, you don't have to give them the rope. They are pushing away. Right. I mean, it's, it's very rare, except for actually post pandemic, it's less rare where we actually have to kind of nudge kids out a bit more. 
um, they were so close to home and it was so scary for so long that we are definitely seeing kids who are much more avoidant of um, the big world than they were prior to the pandemic. Then kids in, like, you know, kids of that age were. So mostly though, in the course of normal development, it's the kid who's pushing for more autonomy and more independence and more freedom. And it's the parent who's kind of pulling back a little bit. And this is what we want to see. It's actually not that pleasant in the day-to-day as a family because your kid's like, come on, come on, or why can't I go over to that kid's house, or I'm sure I can stay out later. Like These are annoying conversations in our kitchen, but I want to see them. As a psychologist, that to me is evidence that things are moving along just fine because that kid eventually does have to go, and it's not going to happen all at once. So I think more of the way I would frame it is, how can you feel comfortable granting the kind of autonomy kids are asking for? And the way we feel comfortable is if we have reason to think they're going to handle it well, that, okay, they're going to go to this concert that we don't really love, and we suspect there's going to be a ton of weed, and we don't really love that either. To make that happen, we have to think, all right, I think my kid has their head on straight and is going to be able to keep their head on straight through that experience. Okay, well, how can you know this? You cannot perfectly know this. But you do have a lot of data to work with, right? Is your kid turning their stuff in on time? Are they coming home when they say they're going to come home? If um, they use up all the gas in the car, do they roll in the driveway on fumes or do they stop by and (laughs) put some gas in the car? Um, Do they write down what they just used up out of the fridge, right? These kinds of things that just show you, like, I am becoming a responsible person with good judgment matter. Because we can say to our kids, you know, you are on top of things. And I do think you are taking good care of yourself. And I can tell you've got your, you know, safety is your concern. You're not just worried about whether I'm going to catch you or not, because I'm not going to catch you. You know how to keep yourself safe. So yeah, you can go to this weird concert. And if anything goes weird or wrong, just call me, we'll help. Or you can say, all right, here's the thing. I would love to let you go to this concert, but here's the problem. You and I both know that concert is, has high potential for all sorts of you know, weirdnesses that I'm uneasy with. I need to be able to count a hundred percent on your good judgment. And you are not even showing me that on the easy stuff. You are, you know, bringing the car home with no gas and you are not texting when you say you're going to text and you're not getting your homework in and whatever. What kind of parent would I be if when you are skywriting that your judgment is pretty shabby right now, I put you in a situation that requires good judgment for the sake of your own safety. So you step it up on all of these things. You show me how good your judgment is, and we can absolutely have a conversation about you doing things. I don't love it, but I'm counting on you to get yourself through it safely. Gotcha. One of, I mean, the whole premise of your book is about the emotional lives of the teenagers. And there was one chapter that I want to circle back on. In your clinical practice, you write about your work at the, there's a school you work at, and you had a colleague in an English department who was getting pushback from parents about a book choice that had emotionally intense stories in it and that the parents were saying it was too much for kids. And I know books seem to be a very hot topic around the country these days. And, you know, I talked earlier about how I don't like it when my kids are uncomfortable or whatever. But you said research was on the teacher's side about these emotionally intense stories. And I thought it was worth noting and and just talking about just because it is a hot topic right now. um, Why do you think parents have fear when it comes to reading or discussing heavy topics. And if your research says that it doesn't it doesn't go bad if kids start 
reading about things that are intense. Why do you think it's why are they so hesitant to let kids read things that might be heavy? Is it because we're all so uncomfortable with being have like with it being emotional or being sad? Well, so so I do consult. Um, there's a school called Laurel School where I've consulted for a long, long time. This um, particular vignette is a colleague calling from another school. Okay, um, talking about um, something that happens in lots of schools, which is that there are assigned readings that parents find concerning. Um, I will tell you, as someone who's practiced and consulted to schools, you know, for more than twenty years. This has always happened, but in a much smaller scale. No, but in a much smaller scale than lately. So we've always had calls, schools have always had calls, um, when there is distressing content in the literature that's being assigned. Um, Even, you know, one of the classics of eighth grade is has forever and always been To Kill a Mockingbird. This is a very upsetting book. Um, This has been eighth grade curriculum since we were in the eighth grade. I mean, there's nothing about this as new. But for some families, the themes are upsetting and they will reach out to the school. And I think each one of those needs to be considered individually because sometimes there's, you know, for whatever the book is being assigned, it may intersect with a particular kid or family's history in a way that is extremely painful. I give an example in the book of um, a student whose dad had died by suicide and then the assigned book had a suicide in it and it was very thoughtfully handled, but it was done in collaboration with the family. So there's room for these conversations. They need to be taken carefully. In recent years, I think that there's been much more politicization, I'm not saying that word well, of um, assigned materials and much more anxiety that has been inspired in parents about how much they can trust their schools with their kids. Um, so I'm not convinced that the more recent versions of this are as um, organized around the actual child's actual emotional experience. I think there's other larger forces at play. But I will say there's always alongside that been um, a current of families trying to contend with the fact that what is assigned is not you know, Sesame Street. I mean, it, it's, it's gets heavier as kids age. And the research that I cite in the book and that's in the back of the book is that when we read books or look at art or engage with creative products that stir our sentiments, that get us thinking about what it's like to be another person, it actually does deepen our empathy and it does expand our humanity And you don't get there through comfort. And I think it's back to what we were saying about, you know, kids who are growing and learning through their own difficult times. When we are at ease, it's a wonderful thing. That's actually, I would say that it's almost never when we're growing. (sighs) It's just, I don't have anything else to say about it other than when I, when I read that, I I do feel like sometimes as a parent, you want to, there's a tendency to like shelter them because you're like, oh, I don't want them to get upset about that. But w- when actually you're saying there's growth that happens when you get upset or when you read about stuff and and connect with other people and how their points of view are. So, but I'll actually, I'll take it further. Um, here's something that can happen in real life, and then here's the reading literature version of it. So I've cared for lots of kids who've dealt with tragedy. Like that's a big part of my practice. I end up dealing with very tragic cases and. It's horrible. Like, I mean, the death of a parent or the death of a peer. I mean, these are terrible situations. What they invariably report to me over time 
is that it resets their yardstick for what constitutes a crisis. And so as painful as that experience is, the net effect is their overall sense of comfort and joy and feeling like things are not worth getting that upset about actually goes up. So that's for kids who are put through tragedy, which we would avoid at all costs. But so then let's picture an eighth grader who's reading a book about what it's like to be a girl in Afghanistan. And it is painful to grapple with those realities. She may be distressed. We actually would want her to have an empathic response to that. The net effect may be that she's like, you know what? Whatever drama went down at lunch, not that big a deal, right? So I think that's part of how we want to think about it. It's not that our kids are made of glass and we don't want anything that might crack them. It's that we're trying to get our kids to expand themselves and expand their capacity for empathizing with others and also for tolerating distress in themselves. And that when they become expansive in this way, when they grow those skills, they can actually engage the world more fully and more less with less anxiety. Like it actually, I think in the end, ends up being a net positive effect. Lisa, um, we're getting close to the end here. And um, you brought something up that I think is an important question uh, that Tracy and I had talked about. And um, Tracy, I think you should ask it. I don't know if I can. Okay. <laughs> uh, you speak about the deaf um, kids that you see that have a deaf in the family. And we actually have that. Um, so I feel like I'm one of those people in your books who would like call you on the phone and say, I have to talk to you about something. <laughs> so it's, this is like partly personal, I guess I would say. But Anne and I both, um, my brother-in-law passed away in August, and so my sister is left with three kids, um, ages 14 and under, and watching the, what do you want to call it, Anne? Watching the the grief process and all this has been extremely painful to watch, and so I guess Anne and I both have talked on the phone, like, how do we help, or how do we deal, like, the kids... I guess the way we've been dealing with it is just not to talk about it. And I feel like instinctually that's bad. Does that make sense, Anne? I don't know how to ask the question. Right. Because we want, um, uh, Jimmer was my, my husband's best friend. So we were all pr- pretty tight together. And, um, and all the kids are sort of a troop. Um, and we want to respect their wishes and not push. Um, but we want to give them a space where they can come. And I, do, I think we don't know where, we don't know how. We're tripping <laughs> this over. This just our, got really serious. This, yeah, we're tripping over our words in this in this question. But like, I'm putting my big girl pants on right now. But basically, like, you talk about trauma in the book and the the kid that had his best friend die in the, um, I think it was a car accident or something. But like, not pressing or not checking in. I feel like if you don't talk about it or you don't check in, it's like it never ha- happened. And I know that's not true, but. I just don't know how to handle teenagers if they don't want to talk about it. Will they talk about it when they want to? Is I guess it boils down to that. If they want to talk about it, will they? So, first of all, I'm very sorry to hear, right? It's just so hard Thank to have you. something like that happen to us as adults and then to be both processing our experience and thinking about our obligations to the kids involved. Let me give you a very 
a bluntly technical response from the grief perspective and kids and what we want to see happen over the long haul. And then let me give you a very immediate, like, here's what I would say to those kids right now, if I were you. So from the technical response, when a parent dies, when a person is still young, what we really know to be the kindest thing is, and this is going to sound like a strange way to say it, but to keep that parent alive in the life of the child. So as you are around these kids and you're at holidays or you're at events, read the moment. But if you feel like you've got the opportunity to say, oh, you know what, your dad, I had this memory when he was at, you know, that he wore this Halloween costume. It was the greatest. Or when you're at their graduations, you can say, oh, your dad, he is so proud of you right now. Like I get choked up. So I think what you would said, Tracy, like it can seem like the parent becomes erased, which is very painful for children to feel like no one's. It's painful for us too. (laughs) Yeah. So to the degree that everyone can, again, be uncomfortable, but not unbearable, keep him in the picture, keep him in the picture. You know, stories about him. They don't know, right? They're going to want to know those stories over time. Okay. So that's one sort of the technical understanding is like, you don't let it fall silent and you do find ways to keep incorporating that into a young person's life. But the flip of it is, we really want to be respectful of where kids are and what mood they're in to talk about anything. And so I think at a moment that feels right, you could say to each of those kids, I would probably do it separately. You know, whenever the moment strikes, if you feel like you want to talk about your dad or talk about what it's like to have him gone, I'm here for it. I am definitely available and ready to have that conversation anytime you want. You know, it can be next week, it can be in four years. Like that will never, that this is, this, there's no expiration date to this offer. So you make it clear, you make it clear. And I also would keep an eye on things like his birthday or the anniversary of his death You know, and just text that kid and be like, you know what, thinking of you extra today. You know, they don't even have to respond. But I think that those gentle ways of making oneself available and making it clear that you can tolerate a high level of discomfort and you can tolerate their very high level of discomfort is fundamentally containing. And I think this is very much still right down the center of this book, which is we are built to withstand a surprising amount of distress. Humans have always done this. Mm-hmm. And part of what young people need from the adults around them is our wordless confidence that they too can withstand a great deal of distress with the loving support, especially of the people around them. But again, they are not usually made of glass. We do not need to treat them like they are fragile. And when we do, it actually undermines our own confidence in their ability to get through hard things. Okay, so I'm sorry that took such a turn, Lisa. We weren't okay. necessarily going. I, I, this is what I do. I am very <laughs> glad to have the hard conversation, <laughs> but very helpful to us. Um, and I will be texting those kids in about a minute. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Lisa Demore. Um, we love having you on our podcast. Um, we do consider you a friend. Uh, our listeners connect with you and your perspectives and your real life examples and stories are excellent for all of us. Um, so thank you, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, and and thanks for being that that 
that voice of reason to make us not feel like we're completely bonkers when our kids act a certain way. There's something about the community when you know other people are going through it or have similar experiences. It makes you feel not totally like an outlier. So go out and get Dr. Demore's latest book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. It comes out February 22nd, right? 21st. 21st. That's what I said. It comes out February 21st, and it's a great read. It was uh, five chapters, six chapters. Five I chapters. Went, it's not even that long a yeah, book. I read it, and uh, so did my husband heard some of it, too, when I read it out <laughs> to him. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you again for having me. So apparently, if there's one takeaway from today, it's that good mental health doesn't necessarily mean happy and joyful all the time, you know, feeling good. It's just not a reality. Yeah, it's feeling okay when things aren't okay, knowing that life is about good and bad, and sometimes really, really bad, uh, not just puppies and rainbows, right? Um, good mental health is being able to manage all the feelings, um, good, bad, ugly, tragic. Yep. You know, Anne, I know there's one way our listeners can emotionally support their kids' mental health and those of other parents. Okay, where, how, I don't know how you're turning this into something funny. I try every time. They can tell their friends and family about our awesome little podcast and boost their own self-esteem because they're, you know, they're learning and growing in the uncomfortable. And they would would boost our (laughs) self-esteem. Exactly. Uh, We would love for everyone to rate us or leave us a review on iTunes. We definitely want your feedback. Yeah, check us out on Facebook or Instagram and share our posts if you like them. Remember, you can reach us via email at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is a WGN Plus podcast edited with help from our very own Ben Anderson. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently. Apparently.